0: ShoreWords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of ShoreWords, and each episode I'll be talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen path. And today it's my great pleasure to be talking with Ann Nutoff about all the work that she has done over the years for coastal and environmental benefits and quality of the shoreline. But first, I'm going to pause for some information from our sponsors.
1: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today daily blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and
0: enjoy the show. So, Annie, I'm so happy that you're on this podcast. Um... Uh, I know that, you know, we met throughout my coastal career, but you've done so much more than that. And I um, I was so appreciative to get your resume because I, I knew the, the coastal part of your work, but I didn't realize the depth at which you've been able to do some amazing work throughout the years. And so um, I think many of the listeners haven't met you or don't know you as well as I do. So I was wondering if you could talk about what it's like to work for a group like NRDC and how you managed to figure out 38 years ago that that was the career you wanted to have and, and stay with such a wonderful group for so many years.
1: So. Well, thank first, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to speak with you. I really love the idea about um, delving into how Books and literature influence our lives and the practical parts of our lives. And of course, they really do. So um, I would say that my um, path to NRDC and to the work I've done as an environmental advocate is um, largely experiential, but also grounded in um, some early inspirations in uh, books and with uh, people. Um, But I will say that I did. Uh, come upon NRDC uh, soon after I graduated from college. I went, I grew up in California in the Bay Area and then went to undergraduate school at the University of Oregon in Eugene where I really discovered um, the magic of wild flowing rivers and mountains and some of the early, you know, some of the really most provocative writing of the time in terms of environmental protection at Abbey and others. But then when I came back to California, I got a part-time job working uh, to try and implement the Coastal Act in the early days. The Coastal Act had just been passed and cities and counties along the coast were busy doing uh, developing local coastal plans. And I was uh, hired by a local group to help do some of those. So we can talk more about that. But I did initially enter the world of environmental advocacy through uh, advocating development of strong uh, resource-protective local coastal plans in Big Sur, Mendocino, San Mateo County, and Santa Barbara County, some of the counties along the California coast that have um, particularly rich natural resources.
0: They do. Yeah. For people who aren't in California, I mean, I think everyone has now seen pictures of the Carmel Coast and the Big Sur area, and know that dramatic landscape. And then the Santa Barbara—I mean, you—you you dealt with a variety of different geographies and uh, coastal challenges, from very very rural to urban.
1: Yes, um, some of them in Santa ba- in San Mateo, we really focused on protecting a lot of the prime agricultural land, so that. Uh, you could actually have a thriving uh, agricultural economy in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is still quite an amazing feat, I believe, that uh, with, within 30 miles of San Francisco, there are you know productive agricultural lands on the uh, California coast. And
0: a lot of folks don't realize, but that's part of the coastal protection is to look at coastal agriculture.
1: Yes. And to have also to protect unique communities. And I think that's one of the things that the California Coastal Act has accomplished. And that is if, you know, I once heard, uh, I think it was Senator Diane Feinstein told me that she, when she flies down the coast of California from San Francisco to Los Angeles, if she looks out the right hand side of the plane where she's looking towards the ocean and the coast, she sees towns and fields and discrete settlement patterns. Whereas she looks on the left-hand side of the plain outside of the coastal zone. It's more like a constant, uh, sea of red root red tile roofs and urbanization. So the sprawl really has happened outside of the coastal zone though. It's one thing the coastal act has been able to do is to have, um, some, some more uh, thoughtful land use patterns.
0: So you identified to me that you're the non-attorney in a very attorney-rich, science-rich organization. How is that?
1: Well, it's, it's funny you asked that. I, um, so I have my uh, degree, my graduate degree in uh, planning, regional planning from Berkeley. And that's a good general degree that ha- has allowed me to work with uh, experts in, all, in a whole range of disciplines. And so, yes, a lot of because I work for the Natural Resources Defense Council, which NRDC uh, started as a team of lawyers uh, to really develop some of our first environmental laws at the federal level the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. Uh, Endangered Species Act, and then get those passed. And then, um, and that's this is really the key to NRDC and has been the key to my work as well, is just passing a law doesn't mean you've got the job done. You have to have the stick-to-itiveness to to, uh, make it actually implement it and make it work on the ground. And if it's not getting implemented to... uh, take them to court to make sure they are implementing it to protect our air, land and water and, uh, and wildlife. So that's the, the ticket of what NRDC has worked on. And that has been, um, what I've focused on is not just getting laws passed, but actually holding, uh, companies and government accountable for making those laws make, make a difference in the real world. And, I like to think that um, I was, I kind of brought some humanity and humor to my work at NRDC. (laughs) And uh, probably I would see things in a more simplified way that actually helped uh, translate. I was often a translator, I think, of um, between the technical and legal requirements that were needed to get something done and the regular decision makers who may not have been as steeped in the details of a law, but I I often was a translator. And I think that uh, proved over time to be very useful.
0: I mean, it's certainly something that I need. I need so much of that law and regulation even translated because that's not... That's not where my head goes. I just don't think that way. But it's so important that it be written correctly. And if it's not to be make sure it gets fixed. What were some of the programs or campaigns that you worked on for the coast in particular that you think are most important today?
1: Well, I worked on well, I think a lot of the land use and the patterns that we've talked about. um, And I think that one thing I will start out and say, one thing I regret that w- I was not able to uh, stop was early on in California, the Coastal Act had an affordable housing policy in it, that as, uh, that as development occurred in the coast, that there had to be some provision of affordable housing. And that was in the Coastal Act for the first several years, and it became very controversial And that um, there was a big, you know, developers in Southern California wanted to take it out and they, and we fought taking it out, but we lost. And as a result, um, I think that affordable housing in California is in particular in along the coast has been a real challenge. And uh, that's something that I'm working on now uh, is to, Try and figure out how to provide more affordable housing throughout California, with a focus on the coast, because these are there we have so many people that uh, work on in the coast but can't afford to live here, so they have to commute in. So that's one thing that I would uh, like to do uh, going forward. But I think um, some of the things that I was able to work on, I th- was early on. There were proposals to drill for oil and gas off. All the entire California coast, starting up in uh, Mendocino, and down, you know, there's, there is existing develop, uh, oil and gas development down in Santa Barbara, but the, the rest of the coast has not had oil and gas development and really doesn't have very much uh, resource potential up there. But the uh, I think it was the Carter administration wanted to open up the coast. And I... I was organized local businesses, uh, restaurants and uh, recreational fishing charters, things like that, Uh, businesses that depended on a clean and healthy coast for their livelihood. I helped organize them to speak out against industrialization of the California coast. And I started with, I had a little uh, white Volkswagen bug at the time, and we made up these big posters with an oil rig with a red slash through them. And I started up at Crescent City and drove south and, you know, knocked on doors of businesses uh, on Main Street and said, would you be willing to put this poster up in your front window? And uh, so I really got to know the coast and a lot of the coastal activists at that time. I remember I slept in a yurt in Point Arena and slept on somebody else's couch in bodega Bay and uh, made my way down the coast and um, that was a real uh, you know exciting time I think and there was you know, gov- government local governments and elected leaders and local activists really pulled together to pull off I think one of the greatest success stories of coastal protection in the us and that was to Uh, stand up for clean coastal waters and oppose industrialization of the coast. Yeah,
0: it's hard to believe what this coast would look like were it not for those efforts. And have you found that 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 initial group that you met has stayed together and grown and been a building block that you've been able to work with over the years?
1: Well, there's a few of us that have stayed and done this work for now it's uh, over 40 years, uh, Richard Charter, Warner Chabot. We all started out. Uh, I think they had hair then, and I was a natural blonde <laughs> when we started.
0: Ah, but all the wisdom that's gone through those years. Yes, we can't hang on to everything and take the wisdom in as well, <laughs> as you alluded to, and as my intro alluded to. This is about literature as well. So, who are some of the writers that you just found to be your your go tos?
1: Well. I think when um, I was a kid, I actually was quite influenced by, and I didn't think about this until I saw the book many years later, but do you know that book, The Little House? And it was about this little house in the field and industry grew up around it and the little house started getting choked up because she, uh, she couldn't breathe very well and then she had to move back out to the country so and I think that actually <laughs> influenced me about land use and want and made me want to uh, try and you know develop enact policies that made more livable mm-hmm. sustainable communities and then I think probably in college um, William O. Douglass' Do Trees Have Standing meant a lot to me. Uh, And Edward Abbey, as I mentioned, the Monkey Wrench Gang, was uh, something I aspired to be, I think, when I was in college. Um, So I think those writers, um, certainly The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich, all of those Mm -hmm. kind of painted a picture about how uh, and then this was before climate change was really on our radar, at least my radar. Um, but it also painted a picture like, you know, things things could go bad unless we do something about it. And so that inspired me to do as much as I could to, you know, to ensure that we have the, a healthy, sustainable environment and equitable communities as as we grow and as, you know, we continue to welcome more people into our state. And I think that you touched
0: on, um, William O. Douglas, but the idea that we were taking on that idea again, that ethic that we're not the only ones who have a role in being on earth and that there's so much of an importance for, um, Mm -hmm. The other beings, but then also the rivers and the trees, to take that on as a, as a right for those to have their existence, or or for, again going back to us, us to have the ability to enjoy them so much. And both of those writers that you talk about at Abbey and and Douglas had very very strong wilderness um, respect. I guess is a good word for it, and and looking at that so so intently, and that writing is also one that I think is very much of that period, because a lot of us hadn't explored the country in detail the way they were talking about it, and did it? Did they encourage you to go out and travel and climb your own mountains? And of of women in mountains, maybe should be the next book that comes out. But were you? um, What what were your actions? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, definitely when I was in college, I spent a lot of time uh, on, I, I really uh, latched onto rivers and uh, rafted all the rivers in the Northwest and Idaho, um, and that was very important. But I think also, you know, do trees have standing? And uh, Edward, I mean, they, they talk about, um, you know, giving voice to the voiceless, whether it's children who uh, can't stand up for themselves and deserve um, a healthy environment or uh, wildlife, animals, plants that can't speak for themselves. And I think that that, for me personally, um, having speaking up for vulnerable populations and vulnerable uh, animals, I think that, that was very motivating to me. It still is. The idea that, uh, you know, a frog through no fault of itself could not no longer have a pond to live in or any of those, vul- those vulnerable populations is uh i i have a very strong sense of using you know the, compulsion to use my voice on behalf of those that don't have uh, a voice and don't have as uh, strong a voice as as well so that applies to vulnerable people as well as mm-hmm. Uh, plants and animals. Yeah. do you can you think of any mentors you've had in the
0: coastal area who have encouraged your work there?
1: Well, in the coastal area, I think. Uh, well, certainly, when I started doing coastal work, the there were these amazing women on the Coastal at, uh, Commission, and they had. Uh, there was the coast. The early days of the California Coastal Commission was really. Uh, characterized by these strong women. There was uh, uh, Jerry Grader from Mendocino who's uh, uh, I think her husband ran a, a, a fishing uh, uh, business out of Noyo Harbor there and her son Zeke Grader became the head of the Pacific Fisheries uh, Fishermen's Group a strong advocate um, there was Naomi Schwartz was the was the chair of the Coastal Commission when I was very active there, Lois Ewan. There was you know, half a dozen very strong women who uh, really helped shape the, both the conscience and the style of, with, and the respect with which the Coastal Commission uh, talked and greeted and worked with uh, landowners in the coastal zone as well as advocacy groups. Those were some of the, the women that I looked to, Those, and, along, and they were also in the same vein as some of the early women who, start, who helped protect San Francisco Bay, Sylvia McLaughlin and others. So I did have some very strong women models at the time, although I will say that I often was, especially in the oil and gas work, I was often the only woman in the room
0: yeah that that's still often the case in many of these big meetings and decisions. It's an odd situation, but it does seem though that because the coastal field is a rather younger profession and growing that there are a lot of women who are part of the the coastal movement and have, as you say from the beginning have been or you know the the recent beginning have been very strong
1: yeah and I think it's you know it's also comes from this you know uh, taking care of a sense of place and caregiving almost is that, you know, taking, taking care of the coast is, and it has attracted uh, women uh, for a long time, I think.
0: So what do you see with the whole issue of climate change and that now, be, I mean, it's, as you said, when you first started looking at coastal concerns, climate wasn't, one of the big ones, but it certainly is now. And um, what are the things you see that you think are are encouraging and promising for a a better future on that regard?
1: Okay, encouraging and promising. All right. Uh, (laughs) Thanks a lot, Leslie. Please, yes. (laughs) I think that uh, certainly the level of awareness has never been as – as great as it is now. And I think uh, finally our elected leaders have got it. And uh, now it's just trying to figure out how to overcome the entrenched interests that have, uh, you know, got a stranglehold on on our democratic system, at least here in the U.S. And, you know, if that Senate didn't look like it did, we could really get something like it does, we could get something done. And I think we will figure it out. I just um, heard Joe Manchin say something that he kind of didn't have objections to the climate part of the Build Back Better bill. So we'll see about that. Um, and I think that one thing is, you know, we get frustrated here in the US. But uh, I've had a chance to go to several of the UN climate conferences, the convening of the parties, as they um, say, the cops. And it, you know, we don't, there's not a debate about climate change in other countries. So that's that's hopeful to me, that just because we have this entrenched debate here in the US, it doesn't extend to the rest of the world. And in fact, you, the US is, you know, has to play catch up on some of this stuff. So that's encouraging to me that uh, you have to kind of look beyond the US debate. Uh, And it's really more, California is more of a model for the rest of the world, because California has been able to come together and get some really meaningful climate policies put in place. And when we got uh, the first tailpipe emissions control passed in 2002, for example. And then when we put in our uh, cap on overall greenhouse gas emissions in 2006, both of those laws were passed with bipartisan support here in California. And that was kind of before uh, the oil industry and others decided to make climate a wedge issue and require fealty by all Republicans against any meaningful climate action. Um, So when people, when elected officials are allowed to vote their conscience and use their minds to make decisions as opposed to some party platform, I think we can um, get, make progress. The other thing that really is heartening to me is that we don't really have to wait for the U S Senate or Congress to take action, local governments and communities and states are already taking action. And, you know, local government is really where most people experience government anyway. Uh, And they, they know if there's a pothole or if there's a requirement to, you know, switch your stove out from gas to uh, electric. And that's where we can really make a difference is at the local level as well, while we're, we're building the necessary political will at the federal and international level.
0: And that circles back to local coastal
1: programs. It really does. And I guess I, I certainly have to uh, include in the hopeful column just the uh, The smart and principled advocacy of young people. I mean, they get it. This is their future, and uh, they're going to hold all of us accountable to you know get this right so that they do have the future. Uh, They can enjoy uh, their lives the way we've been able to enjoy the the beauty that surrounds us. So I I am very hopeful that the children and the young folks uh, are. Are making a big dent. Uh, they really are being heard. I know they're, they get frustrated that they're not being heard, but I think they are being heard. I think, uh, and they're, uh, they're, they're, their advocacy is helping move things along. Yep.
0: It's just, we're, we're very slow in the response at times.
1: We're a little too ossified. Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Often happens. So are, what are you doing now that you are no longer spending 80 hours a week working for NRDC? <laughs>
1: um, well, I am very fortunate to uh, have spent the pandemic uh, down in, the, in beautiful Carmel Valley, which is about 10 miles inland from the coast. And I uh, have a place down here on the Carmel River And so I'm getting to know a new community, uh, doing a lot of gardening, working on, uh, I've actually started getting involved in doing uh, fire mitigation because wildfire and uh, I'm always still working on climate-related stuff because it's the defining issue of our time, right? And here it's very visceral because uh, the first summer I was here, there was a wildfire inland from where i live and there's a lot of things that we can do to help uh, protect communities and to uh, reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfire and so i'm working with my neighbors on some of that and also uh, as i said earlier really trying to work on affordable housing issues and uh, in making our communities uh, making providing opportunities to diversify and uh uh our diversify the our communities and increase the different types of housing stock so that we can have communities with different income levels and uh, make the central coast kind of a model for that type of uh, sustainable living so i'm having a good time and carmel and uh I miss I miss my work in the office but it's a it's a weird time to retire because nobody's in the office anyway. <laughs> That's so true
0: and yeah. It's a it's a, a a huge shift for all the many of the people who are working and probably all the people who are working even those who have to be in in the office every day at the job every day in the the restaurant the factory that it's it's also a different world than what it was in February of 2020.
1: Right, and I think that, um, but it's also, I don't know what your experience has been, but I think that the folks f- that I work with, they also, it has, they're not in, not going in the office has also focused, at first they thought, oh great, I'm going to go to the office, but now it's really focused on how much uh, it, part of what we do is who we work with and the people that we get energy from, uh, I think certainly for me, the work that I did and was able to be excited about for 38 years had so much to do with the people who I worked with, both at NRDC and in uh, local community groups and, and uh, with the yeah. government agencies, you know, the Coastal Commission had great folks and they were fun to work with. So the, you get a lot of energy out of, off of other people. And this remote work after a while takes a toll.
0: Yeah, it does. That's really true. And the the um, the synergy that comes from interacting with people, not through Zoom, is a really um, a key thing that we're missing right now.
1: Yeah, just as, a, as an example, and the kind of ideas that you get from each other, um, back in, uh, it was 99, I think, 98 uh a colleague and I went to the Goldman Awards, you know, the Goldman Awards, it's like the Nobel Prize of environmental activism. And there was this guy there that got an award, they give an award to an environmental activist from every continent in the world. And this guy, Bill Ballantyne got an award from New Zealand for having set up a series of marine reserves in New Zealand to protect habitats uh, in the near shore coastal waters. And my uh, colleague Karen Garrison and I turned to each other and said, why don't we need to do that in California? So we, uh, she wrote a bill and we took it to Sacramento and got an assemblyman who said that was a good idea and he authored it and introduced it. And we uh, passed it that first year in 98 Uh, Then the governor, Pete Wilson, uh, vetoed it. But the next year, Gray Davis was elected. And so we uh, reintroduced it, got it through the legislative process, and he signed it into law. And so now we have the Marine Life Protection Act. And California has the biggest set of protected marine areas in the continental United States. And after that, uh, President Bush established one of the largest marine reserves in the Northwest Hawaiian islands at the federal level. And then president Obama built on that and, uh, created more marine protected areas. And so now, uh, California is in the process of reviewing that and possibly expanding the marine protected areas. And so that's something that, you know, we just got an idea from a, an activist from another country and we're able to build a, a coalition here in California, and now there's a very robust campaign to uh, protect those marine reserves and expand them.
0: I think there should be a marine reserve named for you, Annie. Um, (laughs) Way to bury, (laughs) but I was thinking, way to bury the coastal lead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've kind of worked with somebody and we put together this, the Marine Protected Areas for All of California, which then grew into the national program, which, oh, yeah, we did that. Oh, what an amazing opportunity! You, many, many amazing opportunities you had and will have in the future to really be um, a strong voice for the, the, all the diversity that is of the coast, from the marine protected areas to the inland areas, needing to have that diverse community sense that that to reduce that cookie cutter monoculture that we often see other places. It, it's It's a rich and important area to be um, working for. And thank you so much for all the work you have been doing. And I'm glad that you're continuing this into the future.
1: It's an exciting place to be. You certainly... um... You, it It stays exciting, right? I was was it Sunday morning? I woke up to news of the a tidal wave from a undersea eruption near Tonga and I, I was actually quite impressed with the uh, communication system that the California has. everybody heard about it right away and uh, so it was that, that, so it's always interesting, right?
0: Oh it is. Yeah, it was Saturday morning, and I I was kind of being lazy, and I got this alert on my phone that there was a tsunami. Stay away from the coast. So of course I, but then they said the wave was going to be one to three feet, and I went ah, I'm going down. I'm going to look <laughs> at it. I know I'm, I'm, I know some places where I can be high up to see it and not be at risk. And yeah, you gotta look at these things. You've got to be out there observing.
1: So did you uh, did you see uh, swelling?
0: Yeah. The, I mean it was it was not that wave thing that people um, expect from the, the Japanese block artist, but that um, within a 15 minute cycle, the water was going up and down about two two and a half feet. It was a fairly still area. so it wasn't local waves at all. It was just the, the pulsing in of that tsunami wave in and out of the, um, the bay in San Francisco.
1: Wow. So that it's it is, and I think that that uh, uh, eruption in Tonga and the impact in Santa Cruz Harbor, you know, it just serves to remind us all how connected we all are, and what uh, happens to this planet anywhere on the planet can impact us anywhere else we are. So we really are a. I um I I do political work as well, and I was part of a panel interviewing uh, Mark Kelly, Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona when he was running for Senate and asked him about uh, his environmental commitment. And he said, he said, you know, there are hundred percent of astronauts are environmental activists because all you have to do is when you're in space and you see that little blue marble, you realize how fragile it is. And you realize there's no Plan B or no Planet B, <laughs> and uh, you really get uh, that sense of how small and fragile we are, and how we, what a what an important thing it is to spend time, and how rewarding it is to try and protect that and keep that healthy.
0: Ooh, hard statement to follow. Um. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I will with two lighter questions very quickly. Um, what are you reading right now that might be of interest to our listeners? And what's your favorite beach?
1: Well, what I'm reading is I, for Christmas, my husband gave me Jane Goodall's newest book, Hope. And it's, uh, you know, strategies for coping with it at difficult times. And uh, if I didn't mention Jane Goodall earlier, I should have, because she's always been an inspiration to me, um, and both because she loves animals like I do, but I also love her sense of adventure and, uh, and individualism. So I'm reading that. And what's my favorite beach? Uh I probably my corner uh is Stillwater Cove in Monterey County. I love it's a beach that um, my I grew up walking on and I have a picture of my mother pregnant with me standing on a rock on that beach. So I feel like uh Stillwater Cove is my home. Uh I and I I will say that Carmel Beach is I've been to a lot of beaches around the world mm-hmm. and it's really kind of the most beautiful beach I've ever seen. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's so be- it's so big, and the sand is so fine. And I really like also how it can absorb so many people. It's so fun to see different uh, people from all walks of life. And Carmel Beach is, of course, one of the few uh, beaches in that where dogs are very much define the beach so it's great people watching it's great dog watching and it's just a a beautiful place
0: it is thank you so much annie this has been a wonderful time talking with you and for those of you listening thank you so much for joining us to me it's been both educational inspiring of all the people that annie's worked with and great things that she's done over the years and inspiration for all the things that still need to be done and can be done. I hope it is encouraging you to look differently at your favorite beach, at your coastal communities, and thoughts for how we can continue those into the longer future. Until next time, enjoy the coast and your views of the shore. Goodbye.